0: Before I read our text from Deuteronomy, one of you is missing your Bible. It's a man who was at the men's retreat and left without it. So if that's you, you don't have to admit it right now that you haven't had your Bible for a couple weeks. Just come find me after. Our text today is from. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy is the fifth book from the front. Genesis, Exodus, Levit- Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Or it's on your bulletin and sometimes, well, it's not going to be there. So have a Bible. You mysterious man. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just three verses today. Six through eight. For you are a people who Holy to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people, any other people that the Lord said his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the people's But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. As we are going through. A series on humility and talking about how strong and kind Jesus is. And if I'm weak, that I can come to him. It seems appropriate to admit right now in prayer to humble ourselves that we need him to speak to us. So let's bow our heads before the king of the universe. God, you say if we are weak, that we can come to you. If we are lost, you come to us. If we are confused, if we are tired, if we are afraid, we are welcome in your presence. You gather us together to unify us by your spirit, to strengthen us by your word, to sanctify us by your kindness, your grace. And I humbly admit that I am weak, I am tired, I am afraid, I feel utterly inadequate to be a messenger of your gospel. And we want to humbly admit that we have too many distractions, there are too many things in our hearts that pull us one way or another, that we can't hear your word. How can we be changed, God, unless you make this word sink into our hearts. If you make this word come faithfully from my lips, we are utterly dependent upon you. And we ask that in our weakness, you would show off your strength. For the glory of our risen King Jesus, the fame of his name, by his power and authority, we ask these things. Amen. I am what you might call a fair-weather Minnesota Vikings fan. I grew up here in Minnesota, so yes, they are my team, but I'm not always proud to admit it. Of course, when they're doing really well, I am eager to jump on the bandwagon with everyone else and proclaim the superiority of our state and our team. And then when they lose to the winless Detroit Lions... I am rather quiet as I back off from my fandom to avoid, to disassociate from them and avoid embarrassment. So what we Fairweather fans are really looking for in our team is the joy of victory without all the hard work and commitment by just attaching ourselves to the hard work and commitment of somebody else. And so when our team is winning, Proudly display their colors, their logos, boast all the time every day about how wonderful our team is. Team apparel sales skyrocket in the local stores as grown men rush to the store to put on someone else's uniform. Fans really have very little to do with the success of their team, but in our pride, we want to wear proudly the identity of a winner. I think there's something inside of all of us that makes us want to be connected to something big, something important, something lasting. It's not just a sports phenomenon. It's it's something we are all desperate for, to attach ourselves to a winning team, to be on the right side of history. You've heard that one before. Or maybe to not be part of that weird political party. You want to be part of the influential social movement or follow the the correct experts in authority. Aligning ourselves with the winners gives us a sense of pride that we made the right choice and we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. But the only choice that can truly satisfy that desire isn't your choice at all, but God's choice to redeem you and share his victory with you. The only winning identity that we can have that lasts forever is that of the death and resurrection of King Jesus. On his team, there can be zero sense of pride for making the right choice. Because you must recognize your role on God's team is one of utter powerlessness. You are empty of value. You are completely dependent upon him for life. You add nothing to his victory. And so our only hope for any lasting success is to humbly accept your role as a servant of King Jesus. Contrary to every other kind of allegiance, in Christ's victory, we really have nothing to offer, but we are given the best rewards Every single other alliance that you could make will ultimately leave you empty-handed. Most of us in this room, in this church, will never be very influential in this world. We're not going to be world experts on any subject or leaders in any field or vocation. We, don't, we aren't going to be thrust into high political office where we make decisions that affect society. But that's quite all right with us. Because as ordinary servants of Christ, we are guaranteed something much better than anything we could pull off on our own anyway. But we don't get to be bandwagon fans. You don't get to hop on and off, slink back into the shadows when things aren't going well, when it looks like to the rest of the world that we're on the losing team. We must be all in every moment of every day, flying the banner of Christ, even if the world thinks that we are bound to fail because in our weakness is when Christ's victory is most powerfully proclaimed. So as we continue this theme of humility today, I really want to encourage us. We'll look at Christ a little bit more. Yes, we must but I want to encourage all of us to humbly accept your role as a servant of King Jesus. So last week, Jake was looking a lot at the circumstances, the humble circumstances around Jesus' birth. Today, I want to back up even farther and see what led up to that moment in the people of Israel as a reminder that God has always worked among a humble people. So from this text in Deuteronomy, we're going to start with a look at this dynamic of a little people and their big God. God deliberately chooses to work through weak people in order to show off his strength. And then after we see that pattern established in Israel, we'll turn to the gospels and see how that big God became little. Just a, a crazy thing that we marvel at every Christmas. The people had failed in their role as a humble servant. So God himself came to be the servant on our behalf. And then finally, we'll finish up just looking at who we are as a little church and God's big promises. What do these humble, this humble relationship with God, what does it call us to be today? So let's just go through these three verses in the book of Deuteronomy first, as we start with this concept of a little people. And their big God. In verse 6, God is giving Israel their primary identity. He rescued them out of the land of Egypt. Amazing, ten plagues, red sea crossing, wandering through the wilderness. Manna from heaven, quail from out of nowhere, water from out of rocks. But none of that is to define them as much as this thing he tells them. This is what they are to be all about. Everything they do. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So when Israel thinks about who they are, when they look around at all the other nations and wonder, what makes us unique? How do we relate to everything else? They should see themselves as holy. We've taught before that word holy. Holiness means devotion to God, everything focused right on making God look good, highlighting him in everything you do, drawing attention to him. One Jewish commentator explains that this word is similar to a word translated betrothed, engaged in marriage. It's a legal binding relationship. He says, this word betrothal expresses the idea that when a man betroths a woman she becomes forbidden to others like something consecrated. And so Israel's called to be holy he says because it is consecrated to the Lord Israel must shun all activities that are incompatible with that relationship. You are saying this Is what I am all about. This relationship with God. Israel is to be on team Yahweh alone. Displaying their allegiance to him. In every single thing they do. So God alone. God chose Israel. Out of all the nations. To be a special nation. That he calls. His treasured possession. Wouldn't it be. Delightful husbands. If our wives all felt like. They are our treasured possession. What a special place to be. That word treasured possession is really kind of unique, though. It's used in other places in the Old Testament of a treasure that a king has all for himself. He keeps it in his own palace. He went around and conquered other lands, took all the spoils from his own hard work, put them in His palace for his own joy, for his own delight. God went into Egypt. He plundered Pharaoh's riches in the ten plagues. He took for his own special treasure the people of Israel to be his consecrated holy people. Whose existence is to make him look good and to bring him delight. Now, if you're hearing this as the people of Israel, you're thinking, wow. We must be pretty special for God to come and rescue us like that. So before they let this gets too much into their head, God has to remind them of who they were before. God didn't choose them to be his treasured possession because of something inherently good in themselves, valuable or beautiful about themselves. He says in verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, but That the Lord set his love on you and he chose you for you were the fewest of all the peoples. See, Israel needs a reminder of their humble origins. God did promise calling them out of Egypt. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to put you in a land that is fertile, a land flowing with milk and honey. Your cattle is going to flourish. Your children are going to multiply abundantly. You are going to become a great nation. One day he promised Israel will be the greatest nation on the whole planet. But they must remember it's not because they themselves are great, but because their God is so great. They are a little people with a big God on their own. There's nothing impressive about them compared to all the nations all around them. They are weak. They are pathetic. Everyone looks at them and says, who are these foolish, dirty, disgusting people? The only thing that's going to make them great is jumping onto God's winning team. This is what he explains further in verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Though they were small, weak, insignificant, God has chosen them and loved them simply for the purpose of showing off his power and his faithfulness to his own promises. He, before they ever existed as a nation, he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to take your cute little family that were pagan worshipers over there who had nothing over here and put you there. And I'm going to multiply you to become a great nation, but he would do it in a way that showed the world it was only because of his mighty hand. They would have to live every single generation of their entire existence in a way that constantly puts their own weakness forward. So the world would see that it's not them, but God doing this work. God promised to make them great, but it would have to be in a way that the watching world would always know there's nothing special about these people. They are weird They are foolish. They are strange. The things they do just seem downright dangerous. What is up with these people? But wow, they continue to overcome everything. Who are these people or who is their God? And this last part of verse eight tells us that God redeemed Israel out of slavery, that tells us that they're, to, they're brought out of one place of weakness and put into another place of weakness. The word redeemed has this sense of purchasing someone from slavery. Israel was slaves to Pharaoh, and God went into Egypt. He plundered everything. He defeated Pharaoh and purchased them to be his own slaves. So redemption doesn't mean that you are set free to go live on your own. Do as you please. Be the master of your own life. Redemption is purchase out of slavery to sin. Out of slavery to the world. Out of slavery to selfish desires. Out of slavery to Satan's oppression. And into slavery. Into servanthood. But to a wise, kind, generous, compassionate, and mighty God. In both circumstances, you are weak, humble, dependent. But when you're a servant of the God of the universe, you get all the benefits of being his treasured possession. You get to ride the coattails of his victory into all the blessings of his glory. It's really a sweet deal. It's just really hard for us to accept it. You have nothing to offer. But when you make your life all about him... He gives you everything in return. All it requires is humility, admitting I've got nothing and I'm dependent every day. You must always stay weak, always be utterly dependent. Unfortunately, Israel failed to do that. The whole book of Deuteronomy is basically laying out how to be a nation that stays dependent upon God. All kinds of laws Saying, you need to be weak and dependent upon one another. On me to work in each other. You need to focus your entire community on worshiping me every week, every year. All these festivals, all these sacrifices to show that I am your provider. You are not allowed, Israel, to marry foreign women and make alliances with foreign nations. You're not allowed to build up a massive Treasure for yourself. You can't build your own army. To to protect yourself. You can't go build relationships with other nations. And their gods for provision. But the sad frustrating heartbreaking story. Of the entire Old Testament. Is that is exactly what they did. Over and over. God made them these great promises. All they needed to do was say, thank you. I'm dependent. Keep working through me. Instead, they pursued glory, blessing, strength, pleasure from everything else. They worshiped false gods. They married foreign women. They made treaties with other nations. They stored up treasures for themselves just in case God doesn't come through. Every time they exalted themselves for their own cleverness to keep themselves safe, their own strength, their wealth, their wisdom, God cut them down, taking it all away to make them humble, to force them to be weak. And they started over and they built up their pride again and he cut them down the same cycle over and over. They couldn't stay weak. Imagine If you were a fan of a dream team, I I think of like the 1992 Olympic basketball team, Michael Jordan, all the hall of famers, the best collection of athletes ever to play their game. And they told you, if you devote your entire fandom to us, everything we accomplish, everything we receive as a reward, we will give to you. All you need to do, is every single day of your life, cheer for us, talk about us, proclaim how great we are. And when we win, we'll pull you right into the celebration. And in response, you not only start cheering for other teams, but you start training to try out for other teams. You listen to coaches from other teams to learn their plays so you can jump in and be on their team. You hire an agent to go market yourself, your skills to all the other teams to get you the best contract. You don't need any of that. This makes no sense. That's exactly what God offered Israel and they turned their eyes to the rest of the world and said, well, what do we need to do to look great to them? we We kind of look embarrassing to those people over there, so maybe we should cover up this and avoid doing that. You know the the world thinks that maybe we're a little foolish, so so maybe we should back off on on our these commands from Yahweh, kind of make some alliances so we don't look stick out so much. They did exactly opposite of what they were told would guarantee glory. They don't even know how to be weak properly. You can't be strong enough. They can't be weak enough. So God would have to send someone to be weak for them. In one of the greatest miracles in history, you can debate, like, is God speaking everything out of nothing the greatest miracle? Is is Jesus, die the God of the universe, dying on a cross? Is that the greatest confusion? What about this? John chapter 1. This big God became a little person. John chapter 1 is one of the most astounding things ever written on a piece of paper. In the beginning, he says, he starts off, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus, the son of God, is God in all of his glory and then down in verse 14, John says this shocking statement that God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What are you talking about? John that doesn't make any sense. The God who existed before all times subjected himself to time. The God who created all things entered into creation. The God who gives life to everything took on the life of a human. The God who is light and gives light went into darkness. The God who has no physical existence took on flesh. These, these things don't fit John. The one who revealed himself to Moses, the I am. He is self-existent. He, by his word, makes everything else exist, became one of us. The one who gives life was born into life. The one who was growing in the womb of Mary is speaking Mary's womb into existence. God became humble, weak, dependent. He came to be Israel for Israel. He came to fulfill Deuteronomy 7. He would live the holy life as a treasured possession for people who couldn't do it. Every moment of his life devoted to showing off God's strength. Everything he did was pleasing to the Father. And, oh, that one. Love him amazing. He makes me look good. I delight in him. He came to live a little life to show off the big God. Everything about Christ's life was humble. He was born a tiny helpless baby laid in a feeding trough in an animal stable, dependent on other humans to take care of him. He grew up in a small, rural, podunk, nowhere village, learning the trade of his earthly father. As an adult, he had no home of his own, always needing others to provide a place to eat and sleep. His best friends, the ones who followed him most closely, were outcasts, dirty fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, all kinds of sinners and dirty people. By his divine nature, he was the ruler of all things, but as a human, he refused to accept any offer of authority. He came into Jerusalem. Everyone's celebrating him as a king, but he rode on a donkey, a work animal, not on a war horse, like a conquering king. In the garden of Gethsemane, as he faced his death, he denied his own will. He could have done all kinds of things to compromise the plan and make himself more comfortable. Or in the midst of a sham trial with many false witnesses brought before him, he refused to fight for his own justice. And all of it led to his death as a rebellious criminal on a cross, hanging between two other criminals for crimes he didn't commit. He humbly embraced the idea of the identity of a servant. He endured all these things knowing that glory was guaranteed on the other side of it. He walked this humble path, trusting the Father, trusting the Spirit to work out this plan. He lived the calling of Israel as a humble, weak servant of God, trusting this, all the delights that were promised would come through a life devoted in weakness to making God's strength look good? And did God ever follow through on those promises to exalt the humble? How more? How much more humble can you get than dead, dying on a cross, laying in a tomb, and God reached down into that tomb and raised him from the dead three days later? Few weeks later, he exalts him to his right hand on the throne over heaven and earth, giving him all authority. An entire life of humble obedience resulted in eternal victory and blessing. But it gets even better than that. He didn't just do it for himself; he did it for little ordinary people like us. Amazing. He did it to make that call of Israel possible for a little church like us. For that everyone who trusts in him to make his name famous. He gives his spirit to you so you can live his humble life. You can be obedient just like he was. You can stay faithful until those rewards come. This is now the story of a little church in God's big promises. I'm sure at some point or another, every one of you in this room has thought, I'm nobody special. I don't, I don't have anything to offer. Or maybe you've thought as you look around this church, they're kind of boring. They don't, it's not really exciting. Where's all the cool stuff happening? Or you get to know some of these people and you go, wow, these people are actually kind of pain in the rear and somewhat pathetic. And we are happy to embrace that identity. That's the way we intend to keep it. Because we're not here to make known anything wonderful about ourselves. We are like Israel. There is nothing inherently good in us that makes us special. The only thing that makes us great is that the great God of the universe loves us. Gave his son to die for us. Rose from the dead to purchase us and give us his spirit to show off his strength in our weakness. This is the entire purpose of this body of believers to humbly accept our role as servants of Jesus so that anyone who comes and visits us, anyone who watches what we do, who comes and sees us in our homes, they can think, boy, those people are weird. They are foolish. They're kind of annoying They're dangerous, they're silly, they're boring, whatever they want to label us. But then there's something about them. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe it's God who is alive in us. His power clearly helping us find victory over sin. His love unifying us into a devoted family. His patience helping us endure really difficult trials. His joy giving us smiles in the face of adversity. His promises giving us hope of a resurrected life. Paul picks up on this same theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 14, he wants to help define the role of a Christian bound together with a church. He's explaining to a church, a really messed up church, who's experiencing so much suffering, particularly mockery from the world around them for foolishness in their eyes, for weakness in their eyes. And he says to them, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This verse is a lot like what we were reading in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Paul says that Christ is leading us, his people, through a triumphal procession all over town. It kind of sounds like we are in some victory parade after a big battle we won. We didn't win any battle. It's Christ's victory. In fact, the word translated triumphal procession doesn't describe the people who are victorious, but the people who have been conquered. We are a conquered people being paraded around the world as slaves of the victorious king. Jesus riding on his war chariot with all of us behind him where he gets to say, I won I bought them, they are mine. And I will take them wherever I want to show off my strength. In his death and resurrection, Jesus won the victory of sin and death. He redeems his people from slavery to become his servants, purchased by his own blood. And now our lives devoted to going wherever he calls us to make him look strong. He designs your life to be a parade where you are seen by the world as weak, but he is seen as strong. You are the aroma of Christ everywhere you go. He's dragging you around saying, I redeemed this one by my blood. And to those who don't know God, you look like a fool. And you will always look like a fool to them in the world. But to those whom God is saving, whom he plans to save, who he is sending his spirit to save, there is something mysteriously appealing about all you guys. Your weakness looks comfortable. I tell you how pathetic you are and you all laugh about it. Because in your weakness, in your servanthood, in your humility, you know you are well cared for. Your slavery came to King Jesus Isn't miserable, but it's joyful. It's like you're just a bandwagon fan who jumps on and you haven't done anything for his team. But for some reason, you get to enjoy all the benefits of the team's victory. This is your role in Christ. Give up every effort to make yourself look strong, wise, influential, wealthy, or clever. And devote your entire life to making him look glorious. That's what it means to be humble no matter what role in society you have god gave that to you to make him look good his birth his life his death show us what humility looks like always denying yourself trusting his resurrection promises what does it look like for us to be humble That word literally means weak. I was trying to figure out, does humble just mean like an attitude? But everywhere I looked up the word humble, whether it's in Hebrew, it's in Greek, it always meant someone who is poor, someone who is sick, someone who is low class. So do you have to become that? Do you have to give up everything? Most of us in this room have some level of self-sufficiency in this life or maybe even influence in this world. So what does it mean for us to be humble? I think Jake nailed it last week saying it's less thinking about yourself and more just focusing on the glory of Christ. See yourself as small and insignificant compared to his beauty. Even if you have relative strength, health, wealth in this world compared to others, recognize that your entire existence is dependent upon God holding your life together. You are utterly dependent upon his mercy to take the next breath. Thank you, God. It is pointless to compare yourself to others, others in this room or anyone out in the world. Because you can always find things that make you look a little bit better than somebody else. And that will always lead to prideful self-exaltation. And ultimately to your destruction. But if you lay it all, everything you have, and say, I want to be your servant, God. Use this. Use my nursing. Use my... My position as a doctor, use my life as a mother, use my life as an engineer, whatever it is to make you look good. I will make myself weak so God can show off his strength. But even more than just seeing God as big as a Christian, you must see yourself as his servant, Christ as your master. Even if you have Some position of worldly influence or authority. God has only put you there to show how he rules on the earth. If you have money, it's been given to you so that you can show everyone that he who was rich became poor, that in him we might become rich. Your primary identity now in Christ is part of a priesthood of believers, of worshipers who Schedule every day, every week to make known the glory of Christ in our lives together. Not amassing strength, wealth, alliances for ourselves, but expressing our devotion to Christ in everything we do as husbands, wives, parents, singles, employees, or business owners. Every one of us must humbly accept our role as a servant of King Jesus. So that the world may see in your life that you are happy to be weak when the resurrection strength of Jesus guarantees your eternal joy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all of these promises that guarantee if we let it go, if we embrace our weakness, you will provide. You will take care of us. Not simply because you have pity on us, but because you love to show off your strength. So help us, God, take front row seats to seeing your strength at work in this world. Help us continue to lay ourselves out there in weakness, to give and generously until we are dependent, to welcome others in even if it makes us vulnerable to serve others even if it makes us look weak. God, we want Christ to be seen as strong in our lives. Send us more and more and more of your spirit that we can live this humble servanthood for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.